Okay, Romans chapter 15. Hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. It was kind of a neat time that we had with family. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Romans chapter 15. Paul starts off and he's really continuing where he left off in chapter 14 and talking about caring for one another and picking up at verse 1, he says, we who are strong, I like how he says we, includes himself in there. And I want you to know who's strong. We, he starts with himself. But you know, it's, it's only right that he would say so. It's important that people understand that Paul indeed is strong, that he is coming from a position that God has placed him in, and the authority he has is given by God. The wisdom he has has been given by God. And he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul starts off and he once again says that those who are strong are to be there for those who are not. And really, he makes that the, the needs of those who are weak have to be our burdens. In other words, their family. And those who are weak in our family become our burdens. And it's important that we recognize that. We, we know this in many situations and with many people, especially with our immediate family. If someone does something detrimental in our family, it affects everyone in the family. If someone is injured, if someone gets in a car accident, if someone is sick, they have to be taken care of. How many times has Corrine had to stay up all night because the kids were sick? Because I had to go to work, you know. <laughs> Actually, it affected us both. If she was up, if the kids were crying, if they're throwing up, whatever the situation is, it affects everyone in the family. And it becomes the family's burden. And he's saying that that's what the church is supposed to be. And we talked about how it's interesting that those who are weak were actually those who had more restrictions. Those who had more convictions and more legalistic view of things, they were considered the ones who were weak. And it became the burden of those who had the freedom to make sure that they didn't use their freedom to become a stumbling block for those who were weak. And we're to have this mindset. You know, in World War II, when the troops were sailing across the Atlantic going over to Europe, they were in danger of the German U-boats, their little submarines. And they found that the way to protect themselves was to travel together. And so they would only go as fast as the slowest ship in that battalion. Whatever ship it was that was moving slow, all the other ships would slow down because there was safety if they traveled together. 
But if they said, hey, we can go fast, we're going to take off, they were not only endangering those that were slow, but they were endangering themselves. Because by themselves, they were targets, but together, they could put up a defense. And we are the same way. When one member suffers, we all suffer. And we are to be thoughtful and mindful of these things, of how we care for one another. And this freedom is not just for ourselves. And he gives the example of Christ, who did not please himself. He, he did not, he was not there for himself, but as it was written, and I love that he, he quotes scripture in referring to Christ. And he uses this scripture, he didn't say, and here he just recites what Jesus did, but he recites the scriptures that talk about why Jesus did what he did. And it's important because he's going to go throughout this passage and quote a lot of scripture as our role and as our guidelines. And so Christ didn't please himself. And the scripture he quotes, he says, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. These things are written to teach us. What things? Well, the things about how we are to live. Here's specifically about Christ and how Christ lived that is our example and how we are to live. Paul has been talking about this and about our caring for one another. It's an important part of his presentation to the church that is there in Rome that was suffering from a lot of division. And we're going to see that that division is not leading to the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, it is taking away from that. And it does the same today. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul says, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he's talking about the freedom and you have knowledge of what to eat. Same thing that he's talking about here to the Romans or was in chapter 14. You have the freedom, you can do whatever you want. You have the knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And what did Christ do? Christ built up. Christ didn't think of himself he emptied himself in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ was our example. He is our example. He became a servant. He did not seek his own. He went to the cross for us. What can we do for each other? Paul's now not talking about even just dying. He's talking about just give up some of your freedom so that your brother won't stumble. Be mindful of them and don't live just for yourself. Be aware of the needs of your other uh, brother, your neighbor, so that you could care for them. That's the example that Christ gave and that's what scripture tells us that we're to do. And it's there for your benefit. It's there for your endurance and encouragement, he says. In verse 5, he says, May the God who gives endurance 
and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. This is a prayer. This is Paul praying for us, for the church. And he's saying, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement. Where does endurance and encouragement come from? It comes from God. Amen. Amen. How many times have, have I been at the end of myself and God was there to pick me up? How many times when I did not have the ability to endure any longer, but I found it in God who gives us endurance and gives us encouragement? How many times have you been to a place where you feel like I'm at the end, I'm giving up, I'm quitting, I can't endure, I am defeated, and God encourages you. And he might do it through the scripture, like he just recited, that's why it's there. He might do it through a brother or sister who is there helping you in your weakness, but it comes from God. Encouragement and endurance come from God. And we need to remember this because that's not usually first who we run to. Usually it's a person. We run to someone who we can talk to. And it's not wrong to talk to people, but remember that your endurance and your encouragement comes from God. And Paul is praying, may God give us this endurance and encouragement. And why? So that we can have unity among ourselves. As you follow Christ, verse six, it says, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we see that God is glorified when we are unified. Unity does not mean thinking the same thing. We talked about that last week or two weeks ago. We talked about it Sunday a little bit too. Paul in the previous ch chapter said, each needs to be convinced in his own mind. He didn't say everyone needs to think the same thing. He says, you need to have the right conviction. Be convinced in your own mind. It doesn't mean we think the same thing. It doesn't mean we agree on everything. Unity isn't about conformity. In fact, unity has to take place without conformity because that's how we've been created. That's when unity is seen, not when everyone does the same thing, but when we have our differences and we get along. That's when we see Christ in our midst, in our diversity. We have unity. Remember, we talked about what Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in the peripherals, liberty, but in all things, charity. And so the things that are essential, yeah, we're unified in agreement on those things. The things that are non-essential, our opinions, the disputable matters, Paul says, we can have freedom in those things. But in everything, love has to be a part of it. I am so glad that there are other places of worship in our area. There are some places where they hoot and holler and they shake tambourines 
and they dance. And I'm so glad there are places like that. Aren't you? <laughs> there are places where people can go and do that. And I'm glad. And there are other places where people wear suits and ties and it's very formal. And I'm glad there are places like that too. And I'm glad we don't have to be either one of those. We get to be right. <laughs> I love that we get to be free and enjoy our freedom and enjoy the, the things that God is doing with others as well. One of the things I was always intrigued by were the Billy Graham Crusades. And even Greg Laurie is doing something similar with the Harvest Crusades, where you've got these people on stage that are from such diverse backgrounds. And you're thinking, do those two get along? You know, you wonder, they do now. Why? Because there's something more important. What's happening here is more important than the differences that we have. And we can put those differences aside and be unified in what God is doing here. And we need to have that mentality because it is in that unity, not in the conformity, but in our diversity and in the love that is there in spite of those things that Christ is seeing and that he is glorified. And if he is not, if there is not that unity, if I can't love my brother who I disagree with on the non-essential matters, then God is not going to be glorified. And I have to watch my heart in this matter and not become so critical about things that aren't essential. And it's tough. I have a hard time because I'm very opinionated. I, I have strong opinions. I, I, can, I can get into it. In fact, whenever we have you know, family over even Thanksgiving, we started getting into this little political thing and Kareem puts her gentle hand on my shoulder just like, settle down, Sam, it's okay. It's her way of calming the beast, you know. It's like, it's all right, Sam. It's just want you to know where you're at. This is family. And I, I, I love those kinds of things and I can really get going on it. And I have to guard myself that, you know, the unity and love that we have to have for one another needs to be paramount. It needs to be preeminent. It needs to be foundational. Before anything else happens, that needs to be there. Even though we don't agree on all these things, that has to be there. And so recognizing that unity does not mean conformity. It doesn't mean we agree the same thing. And, and you see, in these things, it's so that we can have hope. And hope is an interesting thing because for there to be hope, there has to be purpose. Our unity has a purpose. It is to glorify God. If we don't have this hope that God is doing something within us and for us and through us, then this unity will become meaningless. But if it has a purpose, then we can endure. Then we can be encouraged because there is a purpose behind the things that we do. And there's a purpose behind us being there and a strength for those who are weak. There's a purpose for us doing these things. In Romans chapter five, 
Paul talked about this. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. And once again, we see the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing and working within all of us. In verse 7, he goes on and he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. You need to just pause there. There should be a little think about that. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You want to bring praise to God? Accept others just as Christ accepted you. That will bring praise to God. Think about how Christ has accepted you. What was your condition? Where were you at when Christ accepted you? Paul says, while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, he died for us. We're to accept each other in our condition with all the weaknesses, with all the failures, with all the quirks, with all the things that are a part of who we are. We need to accept each other in that way because that's how Christ accepted us. And if we do that, we will bring praise to God. It's a powerful thing when love is being demonstrated. When people see love forgive faults, it's a beautiful thing. It's a hard thing to do, but it's a beautiful thing to see. See, it's beautiful when I think about how Christ forgave me and gave his life for me in my condition. It's a beautiful thing. And for someone looking out and looking at that, it brings praise to God. But when I have to forgive someone and love someone and accept someone who's not doing me right, that's a difficult thing. It's not beautiful from my point of view. It might look good from yours perspective, but from mine, it ain't so pretty. And we need to recognize that it brings praise to God when we live this way. And it's a hard thing to do, to humble ourselves and to accept people when they're doing things that don't sit well with us. That's a hard thing to do, but it brings praise to God. And so once again, we see that there is a reason that we're to do this. There's a purpose. It brings praise to God. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you people. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, and who will arise to rule over the nations? The Gentiles will hope in him. Paul then says, just like as God gives praise, he tells us that Christ has become a servant to the Jews. In other words, 
Think of what Jesus did and how it brought praise to God. He became a servant to the Jews under the law. He did that so that God could then use him to reach the Gentiles. He had to be obedient, become a servant. He didn't come as a king. He was fulfilling what God had told him he was going to do. And by doing that, he ended up bringing praise even to the Gentiles. His truth moved forward from just the Jewish nation to the rest of the world. And what Paul is doing here is, is showing those Jewish believers how the obedience of Christ to them resulted in the praise of God to the rest of the world. So it started with you, his submission becoming a servant, being obedient, and it brought praise to God not only to the Jewish people, but to the rest of the world. And see, this is where when we accept one another, it brings praise to God. He's showing how Jesus did just that. Jesus submitted himself as a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth. What is that he talking about? The scriptures. He talked about that earlier. So that the patriarchs, he was made, the promise made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes and he recites these scriptures of how God has been given over and his mercy has been shown to the Gentiles. And, and, and you see, this isn't a new thing. This isn't like, oh, by the way, let's throw the Gentiles in there. This is something God talked about. This is something that God has always talked about. And he talks, he quotes Psalms, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Isaiah, the law the prophets and the Psalms all talk about the Gentiles going to be brought in. He goes through all these areas of scripture showing that this is something that God had planned all along. It's there in Deuteronomy, it's there in the Psalms, it's there in Isaiah. The law, the prophets, the Psalms all talk about the Gentiles being brought in. And you see, what a great thing this is that the submission of Christ opens the door to the world. And what will happen if we submit to one another? How will it open doors of opportunity to reach those around us? It unleashed the kingdom of heaven to the world when Christ was obedient and became a servant. If we would do the same thing, what would it do? How would it impact those around us? Because that's what Paul is trying to make the point here, that just as Christ was submitted to God for your sake, if you would submit to God for your neighbor's sake, it would bring praise to God. And so this isn't something that we need to take lightly. It's something that is very powerful, but it's something that is very lacking in Christendom. There is so much bickering. There is so much arguing. There is so much finger pointing. We have websites that are geared just for that. And if I read them too long, I get furious. And it's like, what are you doing? Why, why are we focusing so much on non-essential things? There is praise that can be brought to God if we will accept each other with our differences and allow God to work in and through us in these areas. Now, he quotes these scriptures because 
the scriptures are God's declaration. They, they are the foundation. They are what God has given for us to be able to hold on to and see. And so he is using these scriptures to, again, bring the Jewish believers to a place to understand that God has declared this. This isn't heresy. This isn't something that God didn't plan all along. And it's important. It's important that we have something that is foundational. And God has given us the scriptures for that reason. Specifically here, he's using the Old Testament scriptures. We now have the New Testament. Peter talks of Paul's writings as being hard to understand, but that we are to give them place with the rest of the scriptures. So Peter gives credibility to the writings of Paul. We have very good reason to believe that what we have here, the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, is something we have confidence in. Without going into too much detail, when the scriptures were what we called canonized, in other words, made into a place where these are acceptable, the method in which they were done was pretty intense. They had to be verified as far as when they were written, the authenticity of their origins. And so they had to, and that's why the uh, Apocrypha, there's some books that are there that didn't get canonized. They got accepted into the Catholic Church, but not into the canon of Scripture in the Protestant Church because there's questionable uh, did Jude really write that book? We don't have that much documentation, and so we didn't accept it. Maybe he did, but we can't verify it, so we aren't accepting it as verifiable. And so the books that we have here were verifiable, even the book of Hebrews, even though we don't know the author. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's assumed maybe Paul did. But there was enough of that documentation that was circulating at the time to say this was accepted by the church fathers. And so we accept it today. Why am I saying this? Because the scripture is the foundation that Paul uses to the Jewish believers here to say what you're seeing take place is what God talked about in Deuteronomy and Psalms and in Isaiah. And it's important that we have something that we can say, this is what we believe, and it's found in the writings that are given to us in Scripture. And so we have these writings as well. It's for our benefit. Second Timothy, Paul writes in 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It is there for our guidelines. It is there to guide us in these things. And now we see that he's given us the example that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures being a servant to the Jews or to the circumcision, it says in some of the translations. And he did this so that he could bring the Gentiles in to the fold. He was obedient to death and he opened the door so that even the Gentiles could come into this place. It goes on in verse 14. And he says, I myself am convinced. And here he's kind of changing the he he finished why we are to care for one another and now he's going to continue on why he is here and what he plans to do and so he's changing thought here just so 
we're kind of aware of that. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I love this verse because I love how Paul has confidence in the Holy Spirit to do a work in the believer's life. Philippians 1.6, he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work will complete it until the day of Christ. And once again, Paul is saying there is goodness. Well, he's just spent, you know, some 15 verses, you know, debating and challenging them. And now he's saying you guys are full of goodness. You think some of you guys are messed up. Some of you guys should not be instructing. Some of you guys need to, you know, go to school, maybe get educated a little bit, maybe go back to, you know, the school in Jerusalem or, you know, follow me or go to the school of Paul. But he doesn't say that. He, he just kind of goes and he says, I know you're full of goodness, competent or complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. That's a profound thing to say to this group that have had struggles. Why would he say that? Because he's confident in the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be too. You see, God has gotten you and me this far. He did it. I, I, I don't know how he got me over here, you know, especially me. How, why am I sitting here? How, how did this happen? God is able to do a work within people's lives and we need to trust and believe that. And he's competent that you can then instruct each other. Whatever it is, wherever you're at, God is able to work within your life. And Paul is aware, I mean, if, if someone says, I accept you, Jesus, and opens their life to him, the Holy Spirit resides in them. The Spirit of the living God what is he able to do? A lot. And Paul is confident in that. It doesn't mean that he's not there to help. He's given us this book and a lot of books to give us instruction. But he has confidence in the Spirit of God, in the work of God, in the believer. He goes on and he says in verse 15, I have written you quite boldly on some points. He's instructed them as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so the Gentiles here are... Paul's duty. In other words, it's kind of like Paul is, is saying, God has placed me here to be a minister. And the words that he used here are, are very sacrificial. The idea of a minister and the idea of a servant here is the idea of God has placed me here so that I can present these Gentile believers here. I have been given this duty, and I'm confident that God has given me this duty of proclaiming this message of God to the Gentiles so that they could be accepted to God. Just as you are, God wants them to be. And what, I forget who it was, I think, I don't remember, I'm gonna quote someone wrong, but, there was one of the commentaries that mentioned that basically Paul is saying, the world is my parish. The world is my church. 
God has called me to minister to the world. And, and he's going to go on and explain that. Verse 17, he says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of the signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Lyricium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And so Paul is saying that I have fulfilled these things, I have done this, and it's Christ that's doing the work. He's not going to boast in himself, but it is what Christ has done in him. And what a great example he is of just not taking glory. If anyone could say, I have done a lot of these things, Paul could, but he doesn't. This is what God has done, how he's used me to reach all these people. And he goes from Jerusalem and this other city that he mentions. Um, we don't see it in the book of Acts or in his travelings, but we think that when he went to Macedonia, that this would be a part of that journey. And this is like the most western region. And so basically Paul is saying, from the first, this way east to the furthest west, I've proclaimed this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not build on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Once again, he's quoting the scriptures. Now, this verse is important to me because I, I struggled with this verse and just building on another man's foundation and what Paul is saying here and how he's proclaiming the gospel. And what Paul is saying here is that it was his desire and felt that God had given him the duty to take the gospel message where it was not preached. And that's why he uses the scripture that he quotes here to kind of bring that confirmation. This is what God has instructed me to do. It doesn't mean that you cannot preach or teach where someone has already. In fact, the book of Romans is Paul instructing a church that he didn't found, that was founded by someone else. So the book of Romans is founded by someone else and Paul is giving instruction to that book or those people. He would later on go to Rome and instruct them, but then he's going to go on uh, or would go on later on to different places. But it's not saying if there is a church there, no one else can teach. Otherwise, there would only be one church in every city. It'd be a big church. How would you do that? The church met in different houses. So it wasn't like Paul saying, well, no, someone has taken the gospel there, so I, I can't take the gospel there. His whole purpose of saying this is God wanted me to reach the world. And if you've already heard it, I'm going to go somewhere else. It doesn't mean that he couldn't preach or teach there. He did the same thing with Apollos. Apollos was there and taught and instructed, and Paul encouraged him and, and was fine with him teaching even though he was there ministering as well. So it's not like you can't have two places ministering at the same time. That's not his point. Because I, you know, I struggle. Why start another church in Upland? There's plenty of them. Well, there's still people that aren't being reached. There's need for plenty more. If there was a church on every corner, there, you know, you'd still have room to fill up the churches. There's a lot of people. 
And, and so it's not like, well, you shouldn't start a church because there's already 20 churches in this area. Well, no, that's not what he's talking about. That's not the foundation he's talking about. He's not talking about, well, you can't start a church if there's a church already there. He's talking about what he was supposed to do was take this gospel message to places that had never been open to it or heard of it before. That's what his ministry was. And so that's what he had been called to do, and that's what he was doing. And that's why it says in verse 22, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. In other words, I had this duty of going to these places. You were already established, but my goal wasn't to go to you. It was to go to where the gospel hasn't been preached. It's been preached there. But we're going to see he wants to go there still. Verse 23, he brings to conclusion just why he wants to visit Rome. And he says, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't make them the focus. He says, I'll visit you, but I'm going to Spain. But I'll stop by and talk to you guys for a while. And then not, you can help me go to Spain. It's kind of like, you know, it's not about you. It's about the work that God's doing. I'll come by and visit you, but I'm not like coming, okay, I'm here to help you guys. I'm, I'm going to focus on you. No, he doesn't focus on them. He says, I'm going to go visit you, but on my way to Spain. And we really don't know if Paul ever made it to Spain. We assume he does because in Timothy, it says that he ran his course, he completed his task. And so we kind of think, well, I think he did, but we have no record of it. But anyway, he goes on and he says, and you can assist me also as I go on my way. In verse 25, says, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Acacia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them the material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of Christ. And we read about this in the book of Acts, how the church in Macedonia and Acacia gave a gift to the church of Jerusalem, that they were suffering and in need, and what a great treaty it was, in a sense, the Gentiles now ministering to the Jews because the gospel came from them, and so they were repaying them, in a sense, and thanking them for their bringing us this gospel message. And now here we can help you. We're partners in this. You blessed us with spiritual things. We will bless you with material things. And it showed that they were being responsible to where they were being blessed. And, and it's a process. And notice that it was done willfully. They were pleased to do it. They didn't have to do it by constraint. They were pleased to do it. And we read about this in Acts where Paul took this gift over to the church in Jerusalem. And then when he went in Jerusalem, he 
had that council where they talked about the Gentiles and what were we going to do with all these Gentile believers? What are we going to put on them? And they had that battle where we're not going to have them circumcised. They're not going to have these burdens that they have to bear. Why should they? Christ died for them. They're not under that law. And so he tells them just, this is what I plan on doing. Now, we have a little hindsight or foresight because we read the book of Acts and we know how this played out. And it's kind of interesting because as this concludes, it's, I don't know, I just found this pretty heavy. In verse 30, he says, I urge you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. So first of all, Paul says, I'm begging you guys, join in my struggle and pray for me. First thing I notice is that prayer is a joining in someone's work. You might not be able to go, but you can pray. And join in my struggle. Paul did not have an easy life. He went through a lot of hardship. And it wasn't difficult for him to say, you guys, can you pray for me? And it's not wrong to ask for prayer. And Paul says, you guys, pray for me. And he tells them what to pray for. He says in verse 31, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. We know that Paul did not do well, that he was beaten, that he had to flee for his life, that he, he fled and went to Corinth for a period of time because he wasn't persecuted there before he actually went into Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, they told him he should t shave his head and take the Nazarite vow so that he'll appear just on their side. He did that and he's still taken and beaten. And as they took him out and beat him, he had to be rescued by the Roman guard. And as he was rescued by the Roman guard, he spoke to him in Greek and he said, is it okay if I talk to them? And he goes, you speak Greek? We thought you were from Egypt. We thought you were part of that insurrection. He goes, oh, no, no, I'm not that person. And he let him speak and he again gave the gospel to them. But once he said the word Gentiles, they tore their clothes and they got upset with him. They took him back and then the centurion had him beaten. And he says, are you going to beat a Roman? I didn't know you were Roman. We're in, we're in trouble here. And then after a period of being a prisoner for a number of years, he appealed to Caesar. He made his way to Rome. But these three things that he prayed for, they, were, they kind of happened difficultly. He didn't go over so well with the Gentiles. He didn't go over so well with the brothers in Jerusalem. They didn't even go and visit him in prison. And he made it to Rome, but it was in prison. Did God answer the prayers? Well, maybe he did. But it's just not how we think they would be answered. God did get him to Rome. God did allow him to minister there in Jerusalem. But it just came with hardship. And 
maybe his life was spared. Maybe things would have went worse if they didn't pray. But, you know, taking this and understanding what took place in Paul's life, even though he asked for prayer, is an important thing because prayer does not guarantee us that there's not going to be hardship. Prayer does not guarantee us that we are not going to have to go through difficult times. The Apostle Paul, even though the church in Rome, and I'm sure they prayed, still went through a very difficult time. And he was okay with it. He didn't say, man, I asked God to help me, and he seemed to think that God did. When he told Timothy, I've run the race, I finished it, I've done what I'm supposed to do, I'm ready. He seemed to be satisfied, even though he went through that. And that convicted me, that just made me think, you know, I think sometimes my perspective of how God works is very shallow, is very selfish, is very self-focused that I think God answers prayer when it goes easy for me. But maybe God answers prayer by accomplishing what he wants to accomplish and using me. And even though it might not be easy, if God is pleased and it does what he accomplishes, then I need to be satisfied with that. Because sometimes I just feel like, you know, this is too hard. Why do I have to go through this? Why does this have to happen to me, God? Why, 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 why? And maybe God is actually answering a prayer if I would just have eyes to be able to see and not be so focused on me. And I just thought this was interesting that the three things he asked for prayer, we kind of know how they went and they didn't seem to go well. Kind of ironic. But God still was glorified. The gospel was still preached and people came to the knowledge of the Son through what Paul did. And his work bore fruit. It just didn't go well for him. And you almost feel sorry for the guy. Man, Paul, I'm sorry. We prayed for you, but you still, you remember, they, whoever goes to Jerusalem with this belt is going to be bound. And he says, I know. I know. I was beaten in the last city. I'll probably get beaten in the next one. I know. But I've got to do it. It's what I've been called to do. I, I've been set to do this mission. And we need to have our, our face set like flint on what God has for us to do. We need to be steadfast. What God calls us to do, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the hardships, we have to do it. It's the right thing to do. And we need to do it with the right attitude as well, so that we don't bring shame to what it is we're proclaiming. Well, let's pray. Father, Paul is such a powerful example and uh, I am so convicted just in a number of areas in the things that we talked about. I'm, I'm convicted with my attitude towards people who I have a hard time with. I, I'm convicted by how I am focus so much on me and whether I've been treated justly or whether I'm seen in the right light or 
how I think of them instead of what you desire, and that is for me to accept them, that you would be honored and receive praise. I'm, I'm convicted by the example of Jesus in giving himself so that others could come into the knowledge of salvation and how far he extended himself and how little I extend myself. I'm convicted by Paul's example in reaching out to these people and what his desire was and what it cost him. And yet he was doing it willingly. And Father, I, I don't know if I would give up or not, but God, you give what we can endure. And just as Paul told those there in Rome that he was confident in them and their goodness and that their ability to instruct and continue. Father, I'm confident in your work, not only in me, but in those here. Father, our confidence is in you. Lord, you are the one who encourages. You are the one who gives us that exhortation and equips us. Father, may we depend on you and, and may we take to heart these things and these truths that were presented by Paul to the church at Rome and, and may they be applicable in our lives. I pray you would help us to grow in these areas, Father, that you would receive praise and that you would be honored. And Lord, may we not give up. May we continue to be steadfast and live for you regardless of what the circumstances are. Father, may the circumstances not control our faith in you. Father, may it be deeper than that. And I thank you for, again, your faithfulness to work in spite of those things. And I do pray you would work these things in our hearts in Jesus' name.